Well, please take a seat. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. And we pray now that as I preach on it, that you would graciously equip and enable me to do so with clarity and liberty and authority. And that the Holy Spirit in whom we believe would take this word and plant it in the hearts of all here this evening. And that he would bring forth much fruit in each and every heart. In our Saviour, we ask. Amen. Well, please do have your Bible open, if possible. Uh, that great psalm that we've heard already in our service this evening, Psalm 104. Really is a, a majestic psalm which praises God because he is both our creator and our provider. And I wonder if you noticed when we read that psalm earlier on that the psalmist has very loosely structured this psalm around Genesis chapter 1. We were in Genesis this morning. We will be in Genesis tomorrow evening. And as God would have it, we're going to be thinking in some ways about Genesis this evening as well, even in Psalm 104. It is a psalm loosely structured around the six days of creation that we find there in Genesis 1. So just glance at the psalm and you'll see those references. In verse 2, the psalmist speaks of light. That, of course, corresponds to day 1. Then in verses 3 and 4, he speaks of waters below and the waters above. That's corresponding to day two of creation. Then in the next few verses, he speaks there of the separation of the land and the water, and as well as that, the, the growth of vegetation. That's day three of creation. Then in verses 19 to 23, he then speaks of the, the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the way in which they mark time. That corresponds to day four. And then he talks of the sea creatures. That's day five. And then in the closing verses, we have this reference to mankind living in relationship to our God. And that, of course, refers to day six of the creation. And so you see what the psalmist is doing in this great psalm, don't you? He is looking at the created world. And yet deliberately, he is doing so through the lens of Genesis chapter 1. That is, of course, the right lens to use when we look at the world around us. He looks at the world, he looks at the creation, but he looks at it through the lens of Genesis chapter 1. And as we look at this psalm, we'll see that the psalmist, first of all, rejoices in four ways that God relates to his creation. And then having looked at those four ways, he, he gives us a brief summary of these things. And then finally, he commands a response. 
So four ways that God relates to creation, a summary of that, and then finally the appropriate response to these things. So let's first of all notice this, the first way that God relates to his creation. And that is that God is exalted above his creation. God is exalted above his creation. And in those opening four verses, uh, the psalmist describes in very, very poetic language the way that God is exalted. It's very hard for us to imagine in our mind's eye um, what is being described to us in these verses. Uh, the way that God clothes himself with light as his garment. Uh, the way that the heavens are stretched out like a tent for him to live in. The way that uh, the beams of his house rest on the waters. Uh, the clouds being used by him as his chariot, driven along by the wind. Of course, it is very poetic language, isn't it? This is not something to be taken literally. But it's all intended to convey this grand thought uh, that God is exalted above his creation. He's the king over it, enthroned above his creation. He's not constrained by his creation in any way like we ourselves are. He's not a part of his creation like the idols that nations worship are a part of the creation, made out of created things. No, you see, this God is exalted. He is enthroned above his creation, and he rules over it as the king. Derek Kidner puts it like this in his commentary. He says, these verses magnificently convey the intimate yet regal relationship of God to his world. He is distinct from his universe, but he is anything but remote from it. The world is something he delights in, which is charged with his energy and alive with his presence. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when the temple has been built by Solomon and they're dedicating that temple, Solomon acknowledges this truth. He prays as follows, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And in Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul, as he preaches to the people of Athens, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. This God, you see, is exalted above his creation. He's the king over it. And then secondly, God has set the boundaries of his creation. He has set the boundaries of his creation. And if verses 1 to 4, as we've seen, describe God as the exalted king over the creation, verses 5 to 9 then describe him as a, a master builder. 
And his great building project is, of course, the creation, the universe. He's the one who built it. And as this master builder, he has built it very well. Uh, firstly, he has set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Uh, there is this inbuilt stability to the created order, set on firm foundations. And as well as that, within the created order, God, this master builder, has set the boundaries of it in place. Uh, again, we're back in Genesis 1 at this point, recalling the third day of creation now. Uh, the psalmist describes how at God's word, the mountains rose up, uh, the valleys sunk low, the waters were gathered into the seas and the oceans. They were separated from the dry land. God set a boundary that these waters may not pass so that the earth might not again be covered by the waters. Reminds us, doesn't it, of the language of Job 38, the way that the Lord answers Job in that chapter. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. You see God has set the boundaries of his creation. And then thirdly God provides for the needs of his creation. He provides for the needs of his creation. In other words, though God is the builder of the creation, he's not just the builder of it. If someone builds you a house, then when they finish building it, that's probably the last you'll see of them. Their, their work is done and they're out of there. And there are those who believe that the God who is there is a little bit like this. That is that he's the one who made the world, but really that's the last we've ever seen of him. Uh, he's out there somewhere, but uh, he's no longer involved in the day-to-day -day running of his creation. Or to change the analogy slightly, he's like a, a clockmaker who makes a, a fine clock and who has then wound it up and, and set it running, but then steps back and, and leaves it just to run on its own devices. And you see, the psalmist is saying to us here in Psalm 104, that's not what the real God is like. Yes, he, he is exalted as king over this creation, and yes, he is the master builder who set the foundations and, and fixed the boundaries of this creation. But he is more than that. He is also the God who is constantly involved in his creation, in the day-to-day -day running of his creation. And in that day-to-day -day running of his creation, he provides for his creatures. And you'll notice that the next three stanzas in the psalm all speak of God providing for various needs of his creation. Uh, firstly, he provides water for his creation. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to
to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. So often we take it for granted, but how vital water is for us. That without water, you'd be dead within three days. And God, in his good providence, is the one, says the psalmist, who provides water for his creation. All creatures, they all need it. The beasts of the field, the donkeys, the, the birds of the heavens, and everything else as well that the psalmist doesn't mention. They all need water, and God, as it were, has set up this natural irrigation system so that water is delivered to them. The springs that gush forth in valleys, the rivers that flow between the hills, the rain that falls from the sky. He provides water that is needed to sustain life. And of course that applies not just to animal life but to plant life as well. Verse 13 picks up on this idea of of the mountains being watered and the earth satisfied so that plants and vegetation can then sprout forth. And that leads naturally to the second way that that God provides for his creation. That is, he also provides food. So look at how that thought is developed in the next little section, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. And of course, here we are at harvest time, and this is what we're celebrating. This is what we're giving thanks for this weekend. The way in which our God provides for the needs of his creation. And in particular, in this specific way of providing food for us. Yet again, we can thank God for another harvest. He has provided for his creation in this way once again. He does it year after year after year, crowning the year with his bounty. Notice verse 14, it speaks of what God causes to grow naturally, grass and plants and food from the earth. And then verse 15 develops that thought. It speaks of what man can make out of what has grown naturally. We can make wine, we can make oil, we can make bread. And ultimately, of course, it is all provided by our good and our generous God. In Acts chapter 14, when the Apostle Paul is preaching there in the city of Lystra, he's speaking there to people who have no biblical knowledge at that point. And nonetheless, Paul says they know something of the God of the Bible, even though they've never had a Bible. He says, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Then in the next section, verses 16 to 18, the psalmist describes another way in which the Lord provides for the needs of his creatures. He provides water, he provides food, and he provides shelter. 
the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. And you see, God has provided a world that is hospitable for all the creatures that he has made. It is a habitable environment. Of course, not every creature can live in every part of the world. And yet there is a place where every creature can call home. The fish in the sea, the birds in the trees, the the worms even in the ground, the goats on the mountainside, the polar bears in the Arctic Circle, the lions in the Serengeti, and so on. So many different creatures that God has made. And as well as making them in his good and wise providence, he has created appropriate dwelling places for all of them to find shelter. What a good God we have. He provides for the needs of his creation. Water, food, shelter, all that is needed for life. And it's at this harvest time we thank him again for the provision of these things for another year. And it assures us and it fills us with peace, doesn't it, when we recognize the goodness of God towards us in this way. Jesus says to us in Matthew 6, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Then here's the fourth way in which God relates to his creation, and that is that he orders the times of his creation. He orders the times of his creation. Now, our little boy, Elliot, is, uh, is just turning three in a couple of months' time. And uh, a little while ago, he moved from his cot into a big boy bed. Uh, and that, of course, means that he can now get out of his bed uh, whenever he likes. And in a futile attempt to try and restrict that newfound freedom uh, that he has, we, we recently got a clock for his bedroom. It's a, a very clever clock in that it displays a moon when Elliot is meant to be in bed, and then it displays a sun when he's allowed to get up. It doesn't always listen to what the clock says, of course, but that's the idea behind it. These things mark the times of his day. And you see, in verses 19 to 23, the psalmist is reflecting here on the fact that God has actually done something very similar to that in the way that he has set up his creation. And he's picking up on the third day, uh, sorry, the fourth day of creation now. And he writes that God made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. And because God has put in place these cosmic timekeepers, the sun and the moon, his creatures can then live their lives accordingly. And as the psalmist describes it to us, when the darkness falls and the night comes, the nocturnal animals creep about. Uh, They hunt for their food, which, as we've seen already, God provides for them. And then after a few hours of darkness, the 
sun starts to rise and the, the light chases the darkness away and the nocturnal animals take that as their cue. They steal away. They go off to their dens. They sleep. But the humans, on the other hand, wake up at this point. The sun's up. And therefore man knows that it's time for him to go out to work and to work throughout the day until the evening and the sun sets. And then this whole process repeats itself again. God, you see, orders the times of his creation. And as the hymn writer puts it so well, we've sung these words already. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. And so the psalmist has shown us these four different ways in which our God relates to his creation. He is exalted above his creation as king. He has set the boundaries of his creation as the builder of it. He provides for the needs of his creation. And as well as that, he has ordered the times of his creation. Day and night, summer and winter. And then the next two little stanzas provide us with a a short summary of all these things that we've looked at. And the point in verses 24 to 26 is that God is our wise creator. That's what we've been seeing throughout, isn't it? He is our wise creator. The psalmist says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And in particular, he he mentions the creatures of the sea. He says, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Now the scriptures, in the scriptures, Leviathan is a fearsome creature that dwells in the waters. And you notice here, don't you, that Leviathan is described in this psalm almost like being a pet, a pet that God has made to play in the sea. The point is that from God's point of view, there is nothing that is fearsome about Leviathan. It's just another creature within God's creation. God is our wise creator. And then the second part of the summary is this. God is our generous provider. Again, it's a theme that's been running through this psalm, isn't it? God is our generous provider. These innumerable creatures all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hands, they are filled with good things. As creatures, we're utterly dependent on God's good provision, giving us our food in due season, filling us with good things. And of course, the flip side of that is is true as well, isn't it? That if God is ever to withdraw his provision, then we are left utterly helpless. So the psalmist continues, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they're created and you renew the face of the ground. You see, he is our generous provider. We're utterly dependent upon him, whether we realize it or not. Only in him do we live and move and have our being. And that brings us then to the final stanza 
of this great psalm. So the psalmist has shown us these four ways in which God relates to his creation. And then just very briefly, he's summed up all of these things in two main points. That God is our wise creator and God is our generous provider. And the only question that remains is, well, how should we respond then to this God? And that's what the final section of the psalm is all about in verses 31 to 35. And you'll see the psalmist has got two main responses to these things. So the first response is this, simply, may God be glorified. May God be glorified. Look at verse 31 and following. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. You see, it's all about the glory of God, isn't it? The first and the most obvious response to all that we've discovered about God in this great psalm is to praise him. It's to rejoice in him. It's to glorify him, along with all of his creation. This great God who is exalted above his creation and and who has set the boundaries of his creation and who provides the needs of his creation and orders the times of his creation. It's God who is our wise creator and our generous provider. How can we respond in any other way than to glorify him? I wonder, is that your response to all of these things in this psalm? That as we marvel at the creation around us, and especially at harvest, as we recognize God's generous provision yet again, that our heart's response is to praise and to thank him for all of these things. May God be glorified. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. So that's the first response. And then the second response is this, and it may surprise you. The second response is, let the wicked be no more. Let the wicked be no more. That's verse 35, isn't it? Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. And that verse just jars us as we come to it, doesn't it? This psalm was going so well, wasn't it? So well for 34 verses. And it was all so pleasant. This wonderful, poetic celebration of God as creator and God as provider. It was going so well. And then all of a sudden, in the very last verse of this long psalm, all of a sudden there is this talk of sin and judgment. It jars us, doesn't it, when we get to verse 35. What's going on here? And as I said right at the beginning, what's happening in this psalm is as follows. The psalmist is looking at the creation around him, but he is deliberately doing so through the lens of Genesis chapter 1. And we've taken note of the fact that he he takes those six days of creation 
that we find in Genesis chapter 1 as the rough outline for this psalm. He structures it around those six days and traces this theme through them of God being the wise creator and the generous provider for his creation. So he's looking at the world around him, the creation around him, through that lens of of Genesis chapter 1. And yet even as he does so, there is this nagging thought in the back of the psalmist's mind, and he keeps that nagging thought under wraps until the very last verse of the psalm. And the nagging thought is this, that there is something in the creation now that wasn't there in Genesis chapter 1. And so the lens, if you like, that he's using doesn't fit with the reality that he's seeing. What is that thing that is in the world before him now that wasn't there in Genesis chapter 1? And the answer is, of course, the thing that is there now is sin. Mankind's rebellion against this God who is our creator and our provider. And the psalmist knows that things have changed since Genesis 1. Sin has entered the world. Sin has spoiled this beautiful creation. The creation, beautiful though it still is undoubtedly, is not what it once was because of sin's presence and sin's effects here. It is a great tragedy. And therefore the psalmist longs that sin would be eradicated from God's creation once and for all. He longs that this creation would be set free from its bondage to decay. And that the creation that he sees around him would be gloriously restored and made spotlessly new once again. And you see, the promise of the gospel is that one day this will indeed happen, that the longing of verse 35 will come true. And it will do so when Jesus returns. The Apostle Peter tells us, according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And in the penultimate chapter of the Bible, Jesus himself says to us, Behold, I am making all things new. And then at last it will be the creation that we long for. It will be like this one. And yet it will have all of the bad things taken out. And all of the good things glorified. God will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And as we close, the question for us is, well, are you going to be a part of that new creation where sin is eradicated totally and righteousness dwells? And the only way to be a part of that new creation is to come to Jesus now acknowledging that really you don't deserve to be a part of that new creation because of the way that you have sinned in the present creation. The way that your sin and and my sin have contributed to the polluting and the corruption of this creation. The way that we've damaged this creation 
damaged those around us and damaged ourselves and rebelled against the God who is the creator and the provider over this creation. And yet trusting in Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse you because at the cross he died for that sin. He suffered its judgment. He bore its curse so that you can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to this God forever. And look forward to spending an eternity in a perfect new creation with him. The God who is our wise creator. The God who is our generous provider. And the God who is in Christ, our gracious redeemer as well. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths of this great psalm. We praise you because you are the God who is exalted above your creation, ruling over it as king. We praise you that you are the one who has set the boundaries of this creation, setting the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And at this harvest time, we particularly thank you that you are the God who provides for your creatures. You provide us with water and food and shelter, all that is needed for life. And you have ordered the times of your creation, day and night, summer and winter, springtime and the harvest. We praise you because you are our wise creator and our generous provider. And having considered all of these things, we pray that you'd help us to respond to you in the right way. And that is first and foremost, may you be glorified. Help us to join in with this psalmist. Help us to sing to you as long as we live. May our meditation be pleasing to you because we rejoice in you. And with the psalmist, we look forward and long for the day when Jesus returns. And at last, sin and suffering will be eradicated from this fallen creation. And all things will be made new. Father, we know that it is only by your grace that we can be a part of that new restored creation. And so we praise you for Jesus, dealing with our sin once and for all at the cross. And we pray that many others would turn to him, be forgiven, and be reconciled to you before Christ returns and before he establishes that new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. In his precious name, we pray all of these things. Amen.